It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm so excited to learn with you from this chapter uh, that we're studying today. So we've been in a series in the book of Daniel, and it's called No Matter What. And uh, over and over again, we're coming to this idea that we see play out through the entire book, and it's this line if you're following along in the message notes. No matter what, God is in control. No matter what, God is in control. Over and over again, we see this idea playing out in the entire book of Daniel. We're studying this prophet, we're studying his life, and we're studying the the things that God shows him and how they might help us understand what this idea means. Well, today, we're in chapter 11. We're almost done with the series. It's the, the penultimate chapter. And I want to ask a question I think this this chapter raises for us. Have you ever had a moment where you've been persecuted for being a Christian? Have you had a time where you've stood up for the name of Jesus and you've come up against resistance? I'm betting most of us have in some form or another. Now, today, you might be here, and you're not sure what you think about Jesus. You may not call yourself a Christian. Hey, we're so glad you're here. Uh, You get a pass on this initial point where you get to talk about, but I hope that you get a glimpse of what Jesus' hope is for you through this message today. And I hope that there's something that you take away that, man, I want to know a little bit more about who this Jesus guy is and feel the freedom to ask your questions. I I hope that's true for you. But for the rest of us who call ourselves Jesus followers— I'm betting that most of us have had one of those moments where we've come up against resistance because we're believers. Maybe for you, that is your workplace. You run there right away. When I first said that, you're thinking, yep, tomorrow morning, I know exactly how it's going to be. You, you think about your work environment, and you, you are the only Christian there. Me, I, my work environment... I think it's a Christian one, you know, church, okay? But when I was in college, I worked for a lawn care company, and part of my job was just, you know, mowing lawns, all that kind of stuff. Well, I was the only believer, and I'll tell you what, I felt alone many times. You know, as I got to know these guys and initially started working there, like, oh, what are you studying? Religion and theology? Oh, there, I mean, immediately, I felt the distinction. I felt on the outside. I felt alone. Now, to their credit, they were respectful. They never really put me down or anything. But there were those moments that you just can never avoid. Where, yep, I'm standing up for the name of Jesus, and it's not easy. Or, you know, maybe work, work is that for you. Maybe it's your family. Maybe when you get together at Thanksgiving, you sit around that Thanksgiving Day table and the conversation starts to go a certain way, you know that every eye is going to be looking at you. Have you ever felt that moment where you stand up for Jesus' name and you're persecuted? What do we do with stuff like that? What do we do with those moments I want to submit to you that today we're not going to answer how to handle persecution uh, in every form. But I want to talk about our posture or what's going on in our hearts when we face moments like that. Because I think 
because this is true of me, and I, I think it might be true of all of us, is we want to control those moments, don't we? For me, sometimes I want to avoid or downplay the, the moment where that rub happens. Or, or maybe it's sometimes where you got to feel like you got to defend yourself. I, I think these are methods or ways that we try to control persecution. But I think our chapter today is going to give us insight into another approach. And it has everything to do with our hearts, our posture, our attitude. So if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got these in front, of, uh, in front of you on the seat racks. Go ahead and grab one of these. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take this. Uh, it's our gift to you. Feel free to walk out with it. Uh, we'll replace it later. We want you to have this. And if you're going to use one of these, the page number is 622. 622. And we're going to play with this idea. So if you're following along in the notes, here's, here's this idea that we're going to wrestle through. We want to control our lives to be free of persecution. We want to control our lives to be free of persecution. We're going to see in this vision that Daniel has that God's people are oppressed. They're persecuted. They come up against uh, resistance because they're, they're God's people. Now, when I, when I talk about persecution, we're going to keep it in the broadest sense. Because there are people out there that are facing the deepest of persecutions in the sense that their lives are threatened. Physically, they will face harm because of their faith. That, that, is, that is part of persecution. But I'm also talking about the wider, wider sense of, of being on the outside and being ostracized, being put out. That's, I want to encompass all of that. But we're not necessarily talking about hardship in, in the bigger sense that sometimes bad things happen to us just because they happen, not necessarily because we're believers. So maybe you're going through a rough time right now, whether it's your health, cancer diagnosis, or whether it's broken family relationships. Sometimes those things happen, and they're not because we're necessarily believers, I hope that you can walk away with something that's helpful to you in those situations. I think the Lord might have something for you, but we're talking about persecution today in a broad sense. So, last week, Brian Schwerberg talked on chapter 10, and actually chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all kind of one big thing, one big story. It's this vision that these angels are communicating to Daniel. And so last week, he talked about the supernatural realm talked about spiritual warfare, things like that. It's a great message. Go listen to it. There's a lot of great information there. But today we get um, to focus in on the actual content of the vision. And so there's a lot of verses here, and I'm not going to read all of that. I want to give you a little bit of a summary so we kind of have handles to know what's, what's happening. Basically, the vision is about a series of kings that are going to come and go after Daniel's time. What we're going to see is over and over again, kings will rise, they're going to assert their authority and power, and then they're going to move on. They're going to disappear, and a new king's going to rise. And there's remarkable detail that God gives us. And so I think one way that, to summarize this, this is the next line in your notes, so if you're following along. The kings of the south and north are the rulers of the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. The kings of the south and the north are these rulers 
So when you think of Ptolemaic, think of Egypt. That's kind of what's happening at this time. And then when you think of Seleucid, think of Persia, Babylon, some of this northern area. Um, we actually have a map that I want to bring up for you. Uh, you can get a picture of what this looks like. So on the north, that's your, your Persian Empire, Seleucid Empire, and then on the south is Egypt, that's the Ptolemaic. The vision has to do with the kings. They're going to rise in these kingdoms. I want to ask you a question. What is in the middle? It's Israel. That little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea, that is Israel. Why this vision is so important It's because it's the back and forth of these kingdoms and everything happens with Israel in the middle. It's what happens to God's people. That's why God is talking about all these kings that are to come because it has everything to do with what's going to happen to Israel. They're in the middle. Now picture, picture this. Think of it this way. Two sides of a battle. Kings on either side, armies on either side, they're looking at each other and they want to kill each other and you're standing in the middle. That's Israel right now. This vision has everything to do with the, t- the kings that are going to come up and they're going to struggle for power in the years to come. So we get a series of kings. Over and over again, these kings are going to rise, they're going to fall. But we get to one king in particular. And in verse 21, he steps onto the scene. And this is the way 21 describes him. The king before him. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Up to this point, we have kings that assert their, their authority and military might, whether they are part of the royal family or take it by force. But this king's a little bit different. He's described as a contemptible king. And he takes it through intrigue. He steals the throne. Now, this person was a part of the family, but he wasn't next in line for the throne. But he, he takes it away. And, and this person is actually probably Antiochus Epiphanes. And Brian Schwarberg talked a little bit about him in chapter 8. Um, and he lived about 175 years before Christ, just to kind of paint the picture. And this is the time well after Daniel. And Rome, it's before Rome has really gotten to the height of its power, but it's after like Alexander the Great um, and, and the fall of the Persian Empire. That's the time that we're talking about. There's this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, that shows up. And he's a bad dude. He's a contemptible person. You see, he comes onto the scene and he has evil in his heart. And what he's going to do is once he steals the kingdom, there's going to come a moment where he comes at odds with Jerusalem, with God's people. He's going to impress them. See, what happens is he goes against Egypt, the kingdom of the south, and he has some success in defeating them. He expands his empire and he goes at it again. He, kinda, he, he attacks them once and then pulls back. He's satisfied, but he wants more. So he attacks again. Well, this time, Rome steps in. In verse 30, you get a reference to ships from the coastland, the western coastland. This is Rome. And they're basically stepping in on the southern kingdom's behalf, this, um, this king's behalf. And they said, nope, you're not taking this anymore. And he is furious. Antiochus, he retreats because he has to, but he is furious. And what he does is he takes out that fury 
on Israel. Once he retreats, he's passing back through Israel, and he goes to town on them. He, he basically comes in, and he, he sacks the city. And if you look down in verse, uh, verse 30 and following, the ships from the western coastline will oppose him. They, he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. He will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. See, he comes in and he basically takes away all of Israel's religious system. No more daily sacrifice. And he's, he basically pulls all those who reject God with him. And then he sets up this desolation, this abomination that causes desolation. And it's probably an idol in the temple, whether an idol to him or an idol to Zeus or another Greek god. But this is like the worst offense for God's people, to come into God's space and to, to defame it like this. This is the type of person that Antiochus is. And we see in verses uh, 36 and following, and actually in your, your first grade box, would you read this with me? I'd love to read a summary of who this king is. Would you read with me? The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. This is his character. He has no regard for Yahweh, for the God of the universe, for the Lord. And he oppresses God's people because of this. This is his character. Now, before we move on too much into the, the oppression that he does and what God's people experience, I want to highlight something for you. This king comes up, but he will meet his end. Now, the, the chapter finishes. It starts in verse 40 through 45. There's a little bit of a shift that I think is important for us to highlight. If you look down in verse 40, you see this phrase, at the time of the end. Now, what we've seen up until verse 40 is remarkable detail. Remarkable detail about how the history of things go, where things progress to. It's incredible how accurate it is. But at verse 40, there's a shift. If this final king is Antiochus Epiphanes, something's off here because the way it describes him, die, this character dying, it's not the same that from what we know of history. And I think there's, there's a shift that takes place, and it's indicated by this phrase, and it's indicated by the changes in the form and some of the vocab and the language. There's a, there's a shift that happens, and I think it's this. Verses 40 and 45 describe a pattern of the type of character that Antiochus is that's going to be repeated. We're going to sing kings come and go that look like Antiochus. Over and over again throughout history, we're going to see the type of people that Antiochus is that show no regard for the Lord. Over and over again, we're going to see that throughout history. And it's going to culminate probably in a final figure. We can maybe call him the Antichrist. Over and over again, this is going to happen. And that's what verses 40 through 45 are kind of pointing to. So if I can summarize all that we've just been talking about, if you're following along in the notes, the final king 
is probably Antiochus Epiphanes. And he sets a repeating pattern through history. He sets a repeating pattern through history. We're going to see the type of Antiochus Epiphanes, that type of character over and over again. And the type of character that he is shows no regard for God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I'm like Antiochus in the sense that I have power and I do things to God's people like that. But you know what? There are times in my life where I don't show regard to God. I want to do things my way. I want to go about things doing it the way I want to do it. I want to have control. I think ultimately he is a picture of humanity as a whole. I think we each have moments in our lives where, you know what, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I want to do it my way. And maybe we even don't see it that way. We see it as, you know, God, I'm trying to follow you, but I want to do it for you. I think he's a picture of humanity. We all have these moments in our lives where we can be like this, where we want to control. Even when we're facing persecution for God's name, we want to control. Okay, so we've got this pattern that Antiochus sets. And what he does is he persecutes God's people. So the next line in the notes, if you're following, God's people will face persecution. God's people will face persecution. See, Antiochus, he comes in, he sets up this idol in the temple, he takes away the daily sacrifice, and he, he will oppress God's people. If you look down in verse 33 and following, those who are wise will instruct many, for though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered, when they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. But some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. God's people are going to face persecution. God's people are going to face persecution. Jesus himself even told us this. He's talking with his disciples uh, on the last night before he, he goes to the cross, and he says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. This is going to be a reality. There's a, an inherent rub that happens because we're different. We're not like them. And that's going to cause friction. That's going to cause persecution. So when you, when you think about this, God's people are going to face persecution. You probably think about your work, your family, these moments, these situations where you have come against it yourself. Now, again, we're talking about what's our role, what's our response in all of this. It's not bad to not want to face persecution. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's okay to not like it. But what is our response? What are we doing when we're faced with it? How, how are we to handle it? Why does God show Daniel this vision? That's a question that was asked. I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. Why, why does God show Daniel this vision? It feels like bad news, right? Well, I think God wants to show us, show Daniel, that he's working. He's at work. We've been looking throughout the entire series that God is in control no matter what. He's in control. He's the one there working through everything. He's overseeing it all. He's in control. 
And I think what we get from this passage is that God's going to deal with evil decisively. So if you're following along in the notes, God will deal decisively with evil in the world. God will deal decisively with evil in the world. Over and over again, we see these kings come to power and they, they assert their authority, they assert their power, they try to steal more land and, and more uh, control. But over and over again, this refrain, he will come to his end. He was no more. If you look down in the, in the final gray box on your message notes, would you read this with me? Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This is the last verse of the chapter. And it's talking about this Antiochus character. He will come to his end because God is in control. God is going to make sure that everything fits the way he wants it to. He's going to deal with the evil, the injustice, the things that are done wrong in this world. And we get the stamp on the cross. You see, Jesus is going to show up on the scene And he's going to say, no more does evil get the final word. No more does evil get the way of things. No more does it get to say, this is how it will be. I get to say that. I get to say that because I'm going to the cross. And evil will no longer have the final say. Life will triumph. Christ will reign Now, evil is still present in the world, but it has been given its death blow on the cross. And when Jesus comes back, he was going to finish the job. He's going to bring the fullness of full life, of good life, of righteous life to fruition. It's in the cross that we see God say, no more does evil have the final word. And that's what I think this passage, this chapter is alluding to. God is pointing to the fact that, you know what? I'm in control. I'm going to bring about the end. I'm going to bring about the way things are meant to be. I'm going to deal with evil in the world. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I think we need to be reminded of something. God doesn't promise that he's going to save us from persecution. Because evil is still present. He he doesn't promise that we're not going to have moments of hardship. They're going to come. God's people will be persecuted. And so the next line in your notes is this. God does not promise always to deliver us from persecution. God does not, always, does not promise always to deliver us from persecution. There will be suffering for his name. I love the story in Acts chapter 12. It's a really cool story of how God can deliver But there's two characters in the story. The the chapter starts with James. The apostles, they've been spread out. There's been some some oppression, some resistance, some persecution that's broken out. And James has been arrested. And he's killed. He's beheaded. The leader of the Jerusalem church has just been killed. And Peter, the second character in the story, he's been arrested. But God delivers him. He frees him from jail and he sends him home to the other believers. He's, re- he's delivered, but James wasn't. You see, in the book of Hebrews 11, this hall of fame of, of the faith, there are believers 
that are not delivered from persecution. God doesn't promise to always deliver us. He can, and sometimes he does, but that's not the promise. Here's the promise. God is in control, and he will give us what we need to make it through. So if you're following along in the notes, God gives us unseen resources to bring us through. God gives us unseen resources to bring us through. Last week, Brian Schwarberg was talking about spiritual warfare and how there's a lot that we don't see that takes place. There are those that are up against us. These are powers and principalities that that war against us. But there's also those who help us, his angels. He sends these these creatures, these beings to aid us. This is all happening around us. And I think that the chief cornerstone of all of this is the spirit. When Jesus is talking to his believers or his disciples, he says, I'm going to send you the Spirit and he's going to encourage you. He's going to give you the words to speak. He's going to be with you. He is your helper. That's a message for us, friends. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. And the Spirit is going to help us in every moment that we come, come across. He will bring us through. Now, you may be familiar with the story, um, ISIS, that's been going on. There's a story that's, that's out there right now of a woman who um, was, was raped and eventually murdered under the ISIS regime. And it may come to your mind of like, what about her? She didn't make it through, did she? She lost her life, right? I mean, what is that about? How, how, did, how did God provide unseen resources for her? I think what that looks like is God standing with her in each and every moment of the horrible things that she experienced and bringing her through to eternal life. Death is not the end. Her life has fullness now because she is with her Lord. Yeah, she went through probably one of the most horrific deals that anyone could ever experience. But she is now with her Lord because she stood firm in him. We're not going to be free of persecution. But death does not have the final say. The Lord does. And he says life, eternal life with me. Unseen resources. Beyond her wildest imagination, God is always there with us. He does not abandon us. So, we see this idea that, that God is in control of every situation, but he doesn't promise to deliver us in every situation. Though he can, he promises to give us unseen resources to help us come through. So, what is our response to be? I think our response is to be this, if you're following along in the notes We're to release control and stand firm in the Lord. We're to release control and stand firm in the Lord. I think this is the big idea of this passage for us. In thinking about persecution, when those moments of hardship come, what is our attitude to be? I think when we know that that God is in control, he's working, and he's working for our good, 
we can release control. We can let go of our desire to make a certain end come about. And we can trust him. We can stand firm in him. So what does this look like? What does this look like? I mean, how how does this actually play out? I've got three suggestions for you. These don't necessarily cover everything. They're not the end-all, be-all. But I I think they they capture a little bit of what our heart, our posture can be when we're approached with, with moments of hardship, moments of persecution. So number one, if you're following along in the notes, don't be surprised, worry, or panic if hard times come. Don't be surprised, don't worry, don't panic if hard times come. You see that God shows us this vision to give us hope, but also to illustrate, I'm not surprised. I know how all of this is going to play out. I'm giving you a glimpse of that. That's why he's showing this to Daniel. That's why he's showing it to us. He himself is not surprised. I don't think we have to be surprised either. I think sometimes when we get surprised, when we worry, when we panic, when hard times come, when persecution comes, that's a, it's an aspect or, or a desire for control. We think that the worry, the panic, will generate something in us that's going to act in a way that looks out for our self-interest. I think when we worry, we're trying to control. And so when we let go, when we release control, that puts us in a place where we can not be surprised. We can know that it's coming. We can, in some ways, expect it. Now, this doesn't mean that when it actually happens, that if you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming, I'm, I'm feeling surprised, I shouldn't feel surprised. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about that moment when you do feel it, what are you going to do with it? Are we going to freak out? Are we going to worry and get panicky? Are we going to relax and trust God in that moment, remembering that he is in control? I think there's a lot of dialogue out there, both Christian and non-Christian, about how things are not going as they should, and we got to do this, otherwise this world's going to pot. I think those are expressions of panic. And God is showing us all of this to remind us that he's in control. Things are going the way he wants them to. He's already laid it all out. And the final end game is that he's going to win, that evil will reign no more, that life will be full. So we don't have to be surprised when hard times come. That's number one. Number two, if you're following along in the notes, Grow in godliness in your own life. Grow in godliness in your own life. We see in, in this vision, over and over again, these, these kings rise up, especially Antiochus, and there's evil that comes with them. There's evil that comes with them. And, and I think God has already declared that I'm going to deal with evil decisively. It's not going to win. And I think that goes for us, too. We all have evil in our, in our lives somewhere. We all have these moments where we show no regard to God, where we want to do things our own way, to control our lives, to control our world. I think one way that we can participate in the work that God is doing 
is to grow in godliness, to allow God to work on our own hearts, to free us of those moments where we want to do it our own way. I think we're called to grow in godliness. When Jesus was um, talking to the crowds and his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, near the end in chapter 7 of Matthew, we get this, the, the famous passage about the speck and the plank. And so we got these verses up on the screen here. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, take out the plank of your own eye. Then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When we grow in godliness and take the plank out of our own eye, We can participate in the work that God is doing to take the specks out of everyone else's eye. And it's when we do that, we participate in removing evil from the world, starting with ourselves. We grow in godliness. We're participating in the work that God's doing. Now, when we talk about evil being removed from the world, I think sometimes we can run to the latest government our series of presidents, or leaders in the world. We start to think like, they're the evil ones. And we, Brian Schwarberg talked about this a little bit last week. And he reminded us of a passage uh, in Ephesians 6 that talks about how we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It's not people that we're fighting against. It's this, this sense of evil, this power, this authority of the devil in the world That's what we're battling against. That's where this is eradicated, and it starts with us. So we don't look at world leaders with contempt, but rather we look at them with compassion, knowing that God could and wants to remove the evil from their own lives, show them grace, just like he has shown us grace. This is all part of growing in godliness in our own lives. That's number two. Number three. Take a PE class. Prepare by prayer and expect with boldness. PE, prepare and expect. Prepare by prayer and expect with boldness. I think what we see here is that God is calling us to take a posture to know the hard times are coming. And we can prepare for them by going to him in prayer. We can say, Lord, help me. I know this, is, this moment's going to come, whether it's tangible for you, your workplace, your family, or whether it's something that you're not sure about, you don't know if it's going to show up in your life in, in the near future or not. But we can pray this prayer. Lord, help me in that moment to stand for you. That's a preparation posture. We can turn to the Lord, and he's going to give us exactly what we need when the time comes. That's preparing in prayer. And then when that moment comes, we can expect that the Lord's going to be there and we can step out in boldness. The Lord promises to give us what we need to stand firm with him. So expect that. Expect that the Lord is going to be right there with you and you're going to have the words that you need. You're going to have the attitude that you need. You're going to be able to stand in him when it's not easy to do so. We can do that with boldness because the Lord is there. 
Now, just to be clear, we don't actually have a class called PE or anything like that, so don't go sign up for it or anything. But I think we can practice this posture. We can prepare in prayer, and we can expect when that moment comes that he's going to give us what we need, and we can do so with boldness. So, release control and stand firm in the Lord. That's the call of this passage, the call of what God has placed in our lives. These moments, they're going to come. We're all going to face them. And maybe that feels like bad news. But the good news is that God is right there with us. That he's going to give us exactly what we need to make it through. And that may not be what we expect. It may not go how we expect. It didn't for the woman who was killed by ISIS. But what we do know is that life will reign. Eternal life is the final destination. Evil does not have the final say. So we can stand with boldness. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us as we step into these moments that the Lord would help us. Whatever it is for you, whether it's your job, whether it's your family, whether it's even just walking down the grocery aisle or sitting at a restaurant table where you feel alone and set apart, you feel oppressed, there are these moments that are going to come. I want to pray that the Lord would help us to release control and to stand firm in him. So would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this vision, that you have shown it to Daniel and you have shown it to us, that, Lord, you are in control. No matter what takes place in the, in the stage of world history, God, you are there. And we know how everything turns out, Lord, and we're so excited to turn to chapter 12 and to hear what you have to say to us through Pastor Jeff next week about the hope that we have where everything is going to play out, Lord. We know that you have dealt uh, decisively with evil. But in the meantime, Lord, would you help us be ready? Would you help us to expect you to be there to give us exactly what we need so we can stand with boldness, Lord? I pray, Father, that we would see you clearly, that we would not be surprised, that we would be not caught off guard, and that we would pursue you with all of our hearts. Thank you, Father, for being present with us, for giving us exactly what we need to stand firm in you. Lord, go with us, knowing that each and every moment you can be there, Lord, to help us. Thanks, Father, for what you do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.